Last year when we started this particular series of conferences on educating our children, I explained in one of the early conferences, I think it might have even been the first one, that what we're doing is we're preparing our children for their career, but not the career of an artist or an architect or an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, not that so much. I simply the career of being a human being, a man or a woman, and a Catholic man, a Catholic woman. A man or woman of principle, of character, of integrity, of strength. That's not going to swing when the wind shifts, they swing. Or when their emotions go down or up, they change course. Or when the siren song of of the world calls them, they off to follow it. But a person of integrity, a person of principle, of character. Now what is necessary for that to be to be there in a human being? Self-mastery. Self-control, self-containment, the ability, the strength to subject the flesh, to the spirit, the passions, the emotions, to the will, the ability to dominate one's instincts, to subject all to the demands of reason and faith, the ability to conduct oneself not after the demands of the body or the demands of the senses, but after the voice of conscience. That's a tall order. It's a very, very tall order. The challenge that, that faces us as educators, you as parents, me as a priest, you as teachers, those of you that are teachers, it's not really, when we say self-mastery, it's not to, to get the child from time to time, on occasion, in certain actions, to resist the whim or to sacrifice a desire for enjoyment. It's not that. It's not going to be enough. Every child will do that on occasion. Every child has a certain generosity. And if the occasion warrants it or they're motivated by a particular cause that touches them, they'll, they'll be generous in that way. But what we need, in fact, what we want to do is instill a habitual desire for what is good and right and upright and noble in the child. To give him the habitual, in other words, something which comes by repeated action. That's what... The word habitual comes from habit, right, which comes from repeated actions, doing the same thing again and again and again. The habitual strength to say no to himself when to give in will knock him off the path of duty, the path of nobility, the path of virtue, the path to God. This self-mastery is something which we see written, in fact, in, in life itself. It's a law of life. That for there to be life, there has to be self-mastery. There has to be some order. For example, if you look, you look at any place, there's a composition of elements making up one whole. There has to be something unifying, directing, and dominating. Some principle of order, take a football team. Right? 
You put 11 guys out there on the field. Somebody's got to be calling the shots. It can't be all 11. If all 11 are calling the shots, disaster. It's the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Sorry. But it's the same thing when we look at creatures within themselves. If you look at an animal, for example, an animal is composed of different parts. Right? There's, an animal is made up of there, there are chemical elements. There's a vegetable element in the sense that there's life. But those lower elements, oxygen and hydrogen and whatever, those things are taken and they're ordered by something higher. There's a life principle in an animal that's higher than the life principle of a plant, a rose bush, and higher than the life principle, certainly, of a rock, even if it's cold. And that life principle has to take those lower elements and command them, and they have to, they have to follow the order that's, that's built into the nature of an animal. They stay they keep a certain characteristic of themselves there. Hydrogen and oxygen make up any human being or any animal, or mostly water, when it comes to just the chemical elements. So then that remains, there's a certain, it's still there. At the same time, they're elevated by that vital principle. And if they revolt, if the lower elements in an animal revolt against the higher, it's the death of the animal. That's what happens when there's sickness. If you take an animal that we had a dog once that got cancer. And so you have the, the cells are going wild. They're no longer following the order that's meant to be there. They're just growing out of control. And they might crush the heart, for example, or crush the brain. A tumor which will grow out of control and crush the brain and destroy the animal. That's what happened with ours. The tumor just eventually, you know, it, it crushed him. Because you had cells doing their own thing. They weren't submitted to the higher order. And so it killed the animal. And what happens? All those chemicals and all that lower order falls back. The animal, which was alive and moving and had a certain personality and certain passions and certain emotions, he dies and he goes back into just being the first just dead matter that disintegrates and falls right back into just the basic elements. At the very most, the dignity that will be left will be that he will give nourishment to a plant that will grow. And in that way, he'll still be associated with something higher than himself. Well, it's the same thing with a human being. We are made up of different levels. And there's a chemical level. There's a, there's a vegetable level. We're alive. Like a plant is alive. We're an, there's an animal level. Right? We can move. We have senses. We can feel. We have emotions. It's another level up, but it's still on the animal level. We have emotions. We have passions. But all of those things in a human being, they are, they are taken and submitted to a higher order, reason, will. And they're elevated by that. We're different than a monkey. We're different than a dog. Even the nicest dog in the world, we're different. We're different in the measure 
that the lower part is submitted to the higher, the reason and the will. And if the lower revolts against the higher, we fall back. Like a dog or, or a cat or a horse, we can have the chemical elements or the vegetable element revolt. We can break a bone. We can get cancer. We can get a cold. We can get a fever, a flu. And that, in the measure that there's a revolt there, we suffer the consequences. We can even die. Well, it's the same thing and more important. When we talk about the animal level revolting against the human level, where we have the emotions or the passions, the appetites of the animal, take control over the reason and over the will. And that is it's the destruction of man as man. Take somebody a drug addict, for example. There's an appetite there. There's a desire for pleasure. He gives in to that desire, and he throws away what makes him a human being. His reason and his will. That's why it's a mortal sin. Because he throws away his humanity, by which he can choose God and save his soul. He let an animal appetite for pleasure dictate his action, and to, to the detriment of his nobility, to the detriment of his health, because obviously you can you can lose your health rapidly through use of drugs, to the detriment of his soul. In the end, what happens, that animal element triumphs by the appetite taking over, but in the end, the animal element suffers too. The man becomes sick. I've got one of my one of my relatives here, he's an alcoholic. By the age, a couple of years older than me, he was an old man. Don't say a word. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. You see someone who they allow the animal to dominate them, and it destroys their humanity. He died very young. The animal rose up in revolt. The appetites controlled. He gave in to that. He lost, firstly, he was an alcoholic, so his reason and his will were devastated by it. But in the end, so was his body. And he died very young. You take, there's a quote from scripture, our Lord says, He who humbles himself shall be exalted. He who exalts himself shall be humbled. You can apply it here to just life on a natural level. The lower part of our being, if it rebels and exalts itself, loses its dignity. That it had by the higher order, which was pulling it and ordering it, that principle of war is very philosophical, but stay with me. I won't be on it too much longer. But that principle of order, that principle of harmony in a human being or in any creature that's composed of different elements, it has to be the higher element that, that, is, that is leading. It can't be the lower. If it's the lower, everything falls apart. It's got to be the higher. In an animal, Right? It's that innate instinct for that, that pushes it away from what is painful right? and attracts it to what is pleasurable, that causes it to, to move from one place to the other, to nourish itself, to protect itself, to reproduce, and so on, so that it stays strong, a strong, healthy animal. 
But it's that higher, that innate instinct, that vital principle there that is the rule. It's, it's not the, the hydrogen element in, a, in the, the animal's body that is dictating what it does. And so it is in a human being, but differently. Because a human being is both animal and rational animal. He cannot just rely on an innate instinct. The higher principle there, there is that innate instinct to, to protect oneself. You know, if you go up and you slap somebody like that immediately, they pick their arm up. It's, it's an instinct. They don't think about it. There is an instinct in a child to feed itself. There is an instinct to, to avoid danger. There are instincts in human beings. But that's not the higher principle. And so therefore it cannot be the guide. The, the, a human being is different from an animal in that it can override those, or let's say, let's say we have fallen instincts, and so those instincts that are there can sometimes be derailed. And if we give in to them, they destroy. You take a child, for example, right? How many times do you hear, you know, you see something in the paper, right? Somebody left. Um, dish detergent or something within reach of the child. Right? And it smelled good. Right? It was pretty. So we drank it. There's the instinct for what was pleasurable there. And he, he followed it. And it was something which was harmful to him. And the same thing happens with adults. Right? A, a human being, because of his desire for pleasure, will overindulge in what's pleasurable. Alcohol. He'll drink too much and destroy his being, like my relative there. Drugs, perhaps. Tobacco. To overindulge. Like a good cigar? Okay, fine. Chain smoke all day long? Not so fine. The instinct is not going to be a sufficient guide for a man. Because sometimes if he follows it, it's going to be to his destruction. For us, we have to go with the higher principle within us, and that is our reason. Our reason, which was, is guided also by faith, which is, is enlightened and, and heightened or elevated by faith, right? but that has to be the guide. It has to be the guide for a human being. Right? And so when you're raising a child, what you want to teach him to be, and now we get to a more practical level, you have to teach him to be reasonable. To follow his reason, and when we talk on the level of faith, to follow his conscience, which is nothing but a practical application of one's mind. The use of one's mind to, to go after what is good and noble, pleasing to God. You want to train your child not to be led by his emotions, not to be led by his passions, not to be led by his appetites, all of which are instinctive, but rather to be led by his reason. And sometimes, reason, many times, reason is going to override, be forced to override those lower instincts and say, no. And your child has to be able to say, no, to himself, to the lower part of his nature. He has to be able to say no. If he cannot say no, he will be destroyed. 
It's not a question of you saying no to him. It's a question of you training him to say no to himself. And there's a huge difference. The effects, if you have a child who becomes a man or a woman who cannot say no to himself, who cannot control his instincts, control his appetites, the effect is disastrous on every level. Not just the level of the soul. On every level, it's disaster. You start on the level of the body. It's the lowest level. The body, if, if your child cannot say no to his appetites, the body will suffer. Abuse of drugs, abuse of alcohol, I wish I could say that in traditional circles we don't have that problem. We do. We do. Overeating, of course. Obviously the body suffers the consequences of this kind of thing. But more, the soul suffers the consequences. And let's stay first on a natural level. The faculties of the soul are the intellect, and then for purposes of this discussion, we'll break out the will and the heart. All three are devastated by someone who allows themselves to be enslaved by their appetites, their instincts. On the level of the intellect, it's clouded, it's deadened. Sensation, the senses, of course, we can say pleasure is what pleases what pleases my eyes, what pleases my ear, right? a beautiful piece of music, what pleases my taste buds, right? a good glass of wine. Pleasure is what pleases, right? but it can dominate. And that sensation that comes from pleasure, it drowns out the thought process. It's easy to see. If I turn on music right now, full blast over there in the corner, you won't be able to think. I won't be able to think. There's too much sensation coming through my ears for me to allow, to allow me to think. It clouds my mind. If I'm trying to listen to a sermon at Sunday Mass and I can smell sausage and pancakes, right, I, I can't focus. I, I, I just can't stay focused. Right? The sensations are drowning out the intellect. <laughs> a perfect example of that also in everyday life, which has long-term effects, is television. I'm not going to go into a long thing about television. But the whole thing about television and the mind is that it's sense overload. The images are going so fast that our mind can't handle it. And so it just goes into a kind of a daze. That's why when you see, you know, there's, a, there's a whole series of cartoons from Calvin and Hobbes on television. Uh, he called it, the, the, the artist called it the modern drug. Those are his words for television. It was not in the cartoon. He just commented on his cartoon. He said, here's the modern drug. Right? But one of, one of my favorite ones is you see Calvin, and he comes up before the television, and he bows down. 
<laughs> he goes, oh, and he goes down on his face, prostrate before the TV. And he says, oh, great altar of passive entertainment, bestow upon me thy discordant images at such speed as to render linear thought impossible. <laughs> Notice that he calls it an altar. Because he's sacrificing his ability to think. He's sacrificing that which makes him human. It's a great sacrifice. An altar. The effect of long-term exposure to the television is bombardment of the senses. Right? Is that the intellect is weakened? The proof, actually, all of us are old enough to remember. Let's say, even something as simple as Monday Night Football. It struck me recently, Monday Night Football, because I don't watch Monday Night Football, but I used to. And I was over at a friend's house, and they had Monday Night Football on. And so, oh, I'll watch it for a few minutes. I could not believe the speed with which they went from one thing to another. Boop, 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 boop. And the graphics all over the place. It's so fast. I had a headache. I love football, but I had a headache. <laughs> they have to go fast. Your advertisements are the same thing. Your ads today, there's another Calvin in the house, basically, that says the ads of today show that the attention span of the average human being is less than one second. <laughs> because what do they do? Boop, 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 boop. And they have to. Precisely because the attention span of the average human being is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because of exposure. The mind is being affected by this overstimulation. The mind is affected. That's on a direct level. We see how the pleasure, and that's what it is, when you watch TV, it's pleasing. Right? It pleases the eye, it pleases the ear, it pleases the imagination, it pleases. Right? But that pleasure is having its effect on the intellect, directly. Indirectly, we see the same kind of thing. There is today in our kids, for sure, a weakened desire to learn. They're not up to the effort required to enjoy something that if you had been in a good school 20 years ago, and some of you were, you could enjoy as absolutely, this is awesome. A Dickens novel, for example. They have a hard time with it. He's a master of human nature, but they have a hard time with him. Too much detail. Goes too far into depth. They want little... Dr. David Allen White just wrote a book on Archbishop Lefebvre, and that's how he wrote the book. He wrote the book, he said, for modern man. He didn't try to tell a story the way a novelist did. He just wrote little clips. There's a weakened desire, because the effort that's required to, to enjoy something like a Dickens novel is more than the effort to require to enjoy, say, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. There's no effort required to enjoy that. It's pure imagery, no storyline, just graphics. Fast-paced, high-tempo graphics. Pure sense pleasure. Almost no intellection at all. 
And so when you put the Pirates of the Caribbean movie next to David Copperfield, I did an experiment. I'd love to do an experiment here if I had lots of money and I could take it all back afterwards. We do the prize table. I'm going to put 20 copies of David Copperfield out and 20 DVDs of Pirates of the Caribbean. How many copies of David Copperfield do you think will go? Not one. With the weakened desire to learn because of the effort required, there's a weakened ability to learn indirectly often because of this giving in to sense pleasure. We see that concretely speaking. I saw that last year. I haven't seen it so much this year. But for sure, last year, Monday mornings were a travesty because the kids were coming to school exhausted. They were exhausted. Because the weekend was time to play, and they would not go to bed. They were on the internet, they were playing video games, they were on the phone, they were, right? So there's no discipline in saying no to pleasure, and so there's no ability left to learn. It wasn't that they came in and wanted to have an attitude, it was that they came in and they were just, I would come in on Monday morning, the weekend's not the easiest time for me, and I would come in feeling dead. And I'd look at them and say, you guys look the way I feel. <laughs> and they would admit that was what was going on. So what we have, well, one of, uh, one of our professors in, in one of our schools said, who's Dr. Wynoski, he's very, very well-trained, excellent professor. We have, an, an, even in our schools, as an effect of this constant giving in to pleasure, what he called academic disengagement. The kids get to a point they're not interested. They're just bored. What they want is clips. They change all the time. They're always new, always exciting. And if you're going to take something like a David Copperfield and go into depth on a character, who has time for that? It, it doesn't satisfy their, their needs for pleasure. That's the intellect. The will also is weakened and even more so by pleasure. Now remember, pleasure is not a bad thing. God created pleasure. It's there for a reason. If there wasn't pleasure in eating food, we would never eat. If there wasn't pleasure in, in marital relations, there wouldn't be any children. God put the pleasure there for a reason. But when the pleasure becomes the only thing that matters, it enslaves. What is it about a slave? He has no will of his own. He has no will of his own. And that's what happens with our youngsters. When they're allowed to indulge their appetites for every kind of pleasure, they lose the ability to act except when there's pleasure and they lose the ability to say no when there's pleasure to be had. An extreme example would be say, an alcoholic. He cannot say no to the drink. He knows what it's doing to his family. He knows what it's doing to his kid. He knows he can lose his job, but he can't say no to that glass of beer. His will is gone. 
And the same thing happens on an every, that's an extreme, granted. But the same thing happens on an everyday level, even in our traditional chapels. There's an inability on the part of our youngsters when they get to a certain age to say no. They can't say no to the pleasures of the flesh. They can't say no to alcohol or to marijuana. Even in our chapels sometimes. They have no will. They have become someone who is enslaved by the need and the desire for pleasure. And it's not that they don't have a good heart. Sometimes you'll see a, you'll see a kid that is really just having an awful time with this or that. And, and he's a good kid. When you talk to him, he's, like, he's torn apart by the fact that he's a slave. And he knows it. He knows it. But when a person becomes a, a man of pleasure, okay, he fears difficulty. He fears it. He dreads a battle. He dreads it. And he'll give in to anything that requires effort to be overcome. So you have, on the one hand, you have a slavery. On the other hand, you have inertia. And you have, I and mean, you can see the devastating effect on the soul of such a child. The intellect clouded then, the will weakened, sometimes to the point of non-existence, right? And the heart is hardened. The heart can become hardened. You could see, when I say the heart, I mean the ability and the willingness to love, to give of oneself. To love, of course, the gaze has to be outward. I can't love someone if I only see me. It's impossible. I can only love them if I see them. But when, when there's pleasure and it's all, life becomes all about pleasure, where's the focus? It's inward. It's me. And on, well, we'll get back to that. I've almost went off track. I don't want to go there yet. But what happens is that when I say the heart is hardened, there's, there's no longer the ability or the willingness to give of self. You could say that the lust for pleasure is, if you imagine it like a big hand, right? It reaches out to the heart of the child and squeezes it and makes it tiny. It's a great heart that makes a great person. In other words, a willingness to give of self. And that, that desire for pleasure shrinks it down to nothingness. There's another Calvin and Hobbes that deals with this particular one. And Calvin's always funny, but he also is very often directed to the Here's Calvin and Hobbes, they're walking. Calvin, of course, is the boy. Hobbes is his tiger, right? And they're walking. And Calvin is philosophizing, which he does a lot. Right? And he says, 
Calvin says to Hobbes, a lot of people don't have principles, but I do. I'm a highly principled person. I live according to one principle, and I never deviate from it. And Hobbes says, what's your principle? And Calvin said, look out for number one. <laughs> it's all about me. It's all about what pleases me, which gives me, that which gives me pleasure. And that's funny when it's in a cartoon, but when it's in real life, it's disastrous. Someone was just telling me this weekend about a mother who left her 13 kids to run off with another guy. 13 kids. How? Because she chose the pleasure, obviously there was no love with her husband, but she chose the pleasure of being loved by a man who's not her husband over the love of her family. How? But that's it right there. That's the hard heart. The heart that can no longer give. You see the same thing with, with, uh, with you know, a man who will blow his paycheck on alcohol. My grandfather, who I never knew, he was an alcoholic as well. There's plenty of it on one side of my family. And he was an alcoholic. And he, he would get his paycheck on Friday and he would go straight to the bar. Cash at the bar. My mom, as, as a child, they were evicted time after time after time. Because there was no money. He spent all his money on boots. So they couldn't pay the rent. There was no food in the house either. So here you have someone who's to an extreme Betraying his family. For what? For a bottle. That's hardness of heart. And you see it in kids too. Right? The, the, the kids will break their parents' hearts. Just break them. Without so much as thought. And you've all seen examples of that. Heard examples of that. Right? Where does it come from? It comes from an inability to say no to pleasure. So the pleasure becomes the only thing that is seen. They don't see anymore the effects of their actions on those around them. They don't care anymore about the effects on those around them. One of the writers that I researched for this conference said, it's very true. Hunger has never caused the loneliness and the cruelty that ambition, greed, and the lust for selfish pleasure cause. And then he uses an example of the, the communist revolution. 35 million victims in five years. Cruelty is beyond conception. You just, it's like, it's unfathomable. I was just talking, I don't even remember who it was, it was one of the priests, and I don't know if he read an article, he was talking to a cop, or what it was. But apparently, the cops are noticing an increasing tendency of criminals to see bloodshed as simply like a cost of doing business. It just doesn't strike them anymore. 
I want the purse, you won't give it to me, smash it. Oh well, I've got your purse. Don't be so stupid next time. They're, they're finding that the, the, the criminals are more and more calloused. It's, it just it doesn't even strike them that they're causing suffering. They want the money so they can have their drug or have their alcohol or have whatever. And the fact that they have to kill somebody to get it, oh well. It's costing them business. So destruction of the soul, the, the, the intellect clouded okay, the will weakened, the heart hardened. It's, it's a path to hell. It really is. Now, of course, if, if the souls are dis- destroyed, what are we going to expect on a level of society as a whole? Let's take the brick that society has built up, let's take the family. Look at the problems in today's society affecting the family. Divorce, refusal of children, abortion, pornography. All of them come down to the ability or the refusal to sing no to self. All. And of course, there's going to be an effect on society at large. If the brick that builds society is crumbling, the whole society will fall. We see that actually very much so in some of the nations of Europe. Italy, for example, parents do not, I mean, Italy is a Catholic country. Catholics don't believe in contraception. The average family in Italy has less than one child. The average per family is less than one child. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out how fast the population of Italy is going to decline. One generation, you've cut it in half. One generation alone. France is another one suffering the same problem. France also is a Catholic country. But the French do not have babies. They're great lovers, selfish lovers. They're not having kids. Who's having kids in France? The Muslims. Lots of kids. They don't believe in contraception. They do believe in giving of oneself, no matter what it costs, for the cause. A cause which, unfortunately, is diabolical. But at least it's a cause. And they're giving. France has a real problem with the Muslims. Of course, you read the papers about the average night 140 cars burn in France. That's an average night. When things get bad, it's 1,400 or 14,000 cars that are burning in France. And who's burning them? Well, the newspaper will say minorities. Who's the minority? The Muslims. And the police can't do a thing. I was there. I saw it. I was in Paris when I was a deacon. So that was 10 years ago. And the Muslims were bombing the subways. And they were, they were car bombs and they were bombing the subways. And the police would not do anything. When there was a riot in Paris that summer, they would stand there and do absolutely nothing. They were forbidden to do so. Their job was to contain it. Why could they do nothing? Because to do something would mean full-scale civil war. And you see society now which is going to be affected by it. The 
consequences of I live for me, I live for pleasure. <coughs> the last effect, disastrous effect, of a lack of self-control, that inability to deny myself pleasure, is misery. It's unhappiness. Pleasure is not happiness. Contrary to what the advertisements will tell you, right? every advertisement tells you that this particular pleasure will give you the fulfillment that you are seeking. This particular one. Almost always, you know, if you buy this particular car, you're going to get the girl with it. Right? You smoke this particular cigarette, you're going to get the girl with it. If you, you know, drink this particular brand of beer, you're going to get the girl with it. Right? And it's, no matter what it is, if you buy this product, you get happiness. Pleasure is not happiness. By definition, Right? Happiness is an inward contentment that comes from a harmony and health of soul and mind, where there's a sense of purpose. So soul, in other words, is a tranquil conscience. Right? The same harmony and health of mind, there's a sense of purpose. And then also of heart, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of, of being loved. That's, that's where happiness comes from. Pleasure is the gratification of a sense appetite. Right? I watch a sunset, it's beautiful. Wow, it's awesome. It's pleasing. It's pleasure. And then the sun's down and it's gone. Right? I, I take an almond joy, the best kind of candy bar there is, for those of you that are listening and taking notes. <laughs> and I eat it, and I go, oh, that's good. And then it's gone. Pleasure, by its very nature, is a passing satisfaction of, of some appetite, some sense appetite. The enjoyment of something. But as you enjoy it, it disappears. And you have nothing. Except the memory of that enjoyment, perhaps. We live in a world that encourages pleasure beyond anything else. When I talked about the advertisements, just coming up here and I turned on the news, right, and I was rewarded immediately with two ads that illustrated my point. <laughs> the first one was a Sam's Club ad that said, let Sam's Club be, let Sam's Club, oh, let's see, let Sam's Club help your holidays this year to be all about indulging your taste buds. <laughs> Let your Christmas be all about indulging your taste buds. That'll be a good Christmas. <laughs> the other one's even better. Play, sleep, repeat. Casino ad. Play. Oh, it's so fun, this is exciting. Right? Sleep, I'm exhausted. Right? Wake up, play again. I'm happy. Until I stop, because I'm out of money. Not in despair. And see, there's something about pleasure. There's Father Leroux that said it to me, and I had to think about it for a while. He said, to live for pleasure alone, which is what most people are doing today, is a desperate kind of life. To live for pleasure is a desperate kind of life that ultimately leads to complete despair. Think about it. 
The thing about pleasure is that it's passing. And so the appetite remains. And the appetite, there's something about our appetites that they always demand more. Some appetites, it's easy to see that. The sex appetite. It can be gratified for a moment, and then it needs something more exciting. Or it's not going to be gratified at the same level. Other appetites are the same thing. The candies today, for example, there's this whole... The popular candy right now are these Altoids and things of that nature. It's extreme candy. When you put it in your mouth, it's, it almost some of the flavors are so much it almost knocks you over. Right? The sensation has to be so strong. More people are interested. I like them actually. <laughs> but every pleasure gets old too. I said to the kids in class, I was talking about this subject in ethics with them, actually. And they said, imagine, everybody here likes chocolate? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw. Okay. Imagine I could grant you a wish. And that wish would be that you could always have the taste of chocolate in your mouth. You know what they said? Yuck. <laughs> it would get old very quickly. Every pleasure gets old. Very quick. And too much of a pleasure renders it repulsive. Even a drug addict, right, he wants the pleasure, it gives, he's got to have more for it to satisfy him. Right? That's why you start marijuana, go to something harder, go to something harder, go to something harder. That's why people OD. Right? Because they need something more to get the same high. But even with a drug addict, when you have that escalation of what he wants to get the high, in the end, it doesn't satisfy him at all. He's got to have it because he can't stand not having it, but it doesn't even please him anymore. And see, that's where the despair comes in. It gets to a point where the pleasure can no longer be enough, no matter how intense it is, no matter how long it lasts, it's not enough. And then there's nothing. There's no reason Calvin and Hobbes actually talk about this a little bit. <laughs> this need for more pleasure. Here's one. It's during summer vacation. And Calvin is running like crazy. He's like, it's July already. Oh, no, no. What happened to June? Summer vacation is slipping through my fingers like grains of sand. It's going too fast. He's talking to Hobbes. Of course, Hobbes is sitting here like, Right? It's, like, it's, it's too fast. We've got to hoard our freedom so we can have more fun. Time rushes on. Help, help. And Hobbes says, I don't think I want to be here at the end of August. <laughs> and, and Calvin goes, ah, it's a half hour later than it was a half hour ago. Run, run. <laughs> Gotta get more. Another time, Calvin wakes up in the middle and I don't have this one with me. Right? He wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, Hobbes, what if there's no life after death? What if this is all there is? That means we're wasting precious moments where we might be enjoying ourselves. Next frame, here's mom and dad waking up in bed. Is that the television I hear? <laughs> it wasn't coincidental, it was a television. Right? 
It's the drug that gives pleasure. If there really is nothing else except pleasure, I've got to have it, and I don't want to have to think about it. Little Calvin Knobs. Many times a person actually is forced, when you look at pleasure and happiness, they're forced to choose between pleasure and happiness. They could have pleasure, but only at the cost of their happiness. A man, for example, who's maybe, let's say, a woman who's not his wife, that's made available or makes herself available, he has to refuse that pleasure, which would be pleasurable, if he wants to be happy. He'll lose everything that's there to make him happy if he gives him the pleasure. Same thing with this pleasure, which is simply a question of in moderation. If someone gives in to an immoderate appetite for food, eventually they lose their health. And sometimes we even have to sacrifice legitimate pleasures, right, if we're going to be happy. You think an athlete who wants to be successful, he has to give up certain kinds of food, he has to train and suffer the pain of it, so on and so forth. Right? A woman who wants to have a child, right, she, she has to not give up certain kinds of food, eat certain kinds of food, right, more certain kinds of food, but she has to bear the struggle and the difficulty. Sometimes we have to choose happiness over so the whole point is that instinct and pleasure cannot be the ruling principle of life. It cannot be. Human life, life which is properly human, is a life of self-mastery, self-conquest, following the guide of reason and conscience. So you don't want your child, you want to teach your child not to do what pleases him. Take this home with nothing else. You don't want to train your child to do what pleases him. You want to train him to do what is right. So what's right that's going to make him happy. It's not a question of pleasure. He cannot have a habit of, avoiding, of, of, of obeying simply the voice of caprice. He's got to have a habit of obeying the call, that interior call, to duty, to nobility. And so we see how what Scripture said about we have to die if we're going to live. It's right there. We have to die to ourselves if we're going to really live a human life. Uh, one of the French poets, poets, but most of these conferences are coming from a book called The Art of Arts. It's only available in French. And he quotes a French poet. I thought it was very good. He says, How will you find the path that leads to the country you desire? By renouncing your desires. How will you find the path that leads to the country of your desire by renouncing your desires? You have to be able to say no. Now, how are you going to train your child to do that? There's only one way. Effort. To be able to say no to oneself, to resist the instincts, there has to be an energetic and tenacious will. There has to be strength of will. And the only way we can have strength of will is through effort. The will is like a muscle. I've said it many times. 
A muscle that is used grows stronger. A muscle that exercises itself grows stronger. A muscle that does not get used, it decays and disappears. And so it is with the human will. You would think in our society, right, with its pull oneself up by the bootstraps mentality, that there would be a tremendous respect for effort. But it's being lost. It's being lost. Calvin has a lot to say about it. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Here's one. Here he is in class. You have a question, Calvin? This is Mrs. Worm, Miss Wormwood. Uh, it's interesting that the, the artist says that Miss Worm, when he comments on her, he says she's a serious teacher. She's serious about education, and that's why she's so unhappy. And here you'll see why. Here it is. You have a question, Calvin? Calvin says, yes. What assurance do I have that this education is adequately preparing me for the 21st century? Am I getting the skills I'll need to effectively compete in a tough global economy? I want a high-paying job when I get out of here. I want an opportunity. She says to him, well, in that case, young man, I suggest you start working harder. What you get out of school depends on what you put into it. Oh, and then forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and forget it. There's another one. So is Calvin. Right? And he's, there's no words to this one. He just, he got his baseball bat out. He's got his baseball. He throws it up in the air and he goes, and he whiffs. Walks into the garage. He's out with a beach ball. <laughs> <laughs> Don't work to get better. Just make it easier so I can get the job done. Here's one too. See, here's Calvin. He's always making snowmen. Here he's making a very bad snowman because it fits what he's talking about at the moment. Right? He says, see, Hobbes, we shouldn't need accomplishments to feel good about ourselves. Self-esteem shouldn't be conditional. That's why I've stopped doing homework. I don't need to learn things to like myself. I'm fine the way I am. And so Hobbes says to him, so the secret to good self-esteem is to lower your expectations to the point where they're already met. <laughs> and Calvin says, right, we should take pride in our mediocrity. <laughs> and Hobbes says, remind me to invest overseas. <laughs> and then Hobbes says, Calvin looks at the snowman, which is only half finished, and he goes, I think the snowman is good enough, don't you? <laughs> That's it, though. That is our society. It really is. Here's another one. I don't want to pay any dues in life. I want to be a one in a million overnight success. I want the world handed to me on a silver platter. Hobbes goes, good luck, and walks away. And Calvin yells out after him, surely you concede I deserve it. <laughs> That's our world. I mean, it's funny, but it's, it's our world. The artist was not just being funny. He was mocking our society. Really, really was. So how do we do it? How do we, we require this effort which is going to strengthen the muscle of the will of our kids? First of all, in general, you can't be soft on them. In general, we are too soft on our kids. We are too easy on them. Right? We're too much trying 
to avoid anything for them which causes too much effort in our mind or suffering of any sort. And that softness, of course, spoils the will. We talk about spoiling a kid by too much pleasure, right, or too much softness, making things too easy for them. The word is apropos, spoil. When tomatoes, if you buy you know, a can of tomatoes and you open it up and they're spoiled, what are they? They're rotten. They stink. They're good for nothing. They can't even be used. They can just be dumped on a heap. There's a reason we use the language we use. If the heart and will of a child are spoiled, and so we have to avoid at all costs pouring too much pleasures on the kids by constant candies. You know, when it's a jogathon and you need them to do some work, then you give them candies. <laughs> but too much is too much. Little gifts all the time, whims, whatever they want, they get. No, because you destroy their will. You teach them that whatever they want, they can have it. And that it's all about satisfying whatever their wants are. The softness of life is the same thing. It trains the kids to expect ease. To expect a life of ease. I don't know about you, but I think all of us here are well aware that life is not easy. It's not easy at all. And if we've been raised to expect, like Calvin has, we expect it just to be given to us. We're going to be, we're going to be overwhelmed. And so you have to harden the children a little to the difficulties of life. And you do it by simply allowing the normal difficulties to run their course. You know, it's, it's dinner is a half hour late because you're, whatever, you're running late for some reason. And your kids are hungry. They can wait a half an hour. It's not going to kill them. It won't hurt them at all. When you serve something and you know they don't really like it that much, it's not going to kill them to eat it. With the reason, you don't want to make your kid throw up on his plate. Right? At the same time, right, to, to say, no, eat it. It's good for you. <laughs> but it develops a certain strength and ability to rise above the appetites of the body. Same thing with, with duties that are maybe not so fun. All of you have restrooms, they need cleaned. It's not mom's job to do every disagreeable task in the house. Share the wealth. It's true. It's true. Don't give so much that you spoil the will and make it impossible for the will to have any, any strength. There's a great quote from a French educator, the deprived child is a strong child. Not a child deprived of love. That's a child who has no strength at all. He's got to have love. But a child who's deprived of ease, who's deprived of candy all the time, and gifts all the time, and money all the time, that child is a strong child. So avoid spoiling, rule number one. Rule number two, 
require true effort in every domain. In every domain. Whether it's chores around the house, whether it's schoolwork, whether it's games, require true effort. In other words, attentive and generous application of self. You can't let your kids shirk the responsibilities. The responsibility of getting up in the morning, for example, to go to school. That's a duty. You can't let them say, I don't feel like it. Oh, I'll stay in the No. You're weakening their will. So look, get up, come on. I'm leaving for school. And if they're not ready, leave without them. And don't go back. In the school. Don't become a slave to the whims of your children. You destroy them. You have to require the effort they're able to give. They have a lot more energy than you do. Right? It's amazing what kids can do. They're able to do it. But it takes effort, which requires a certain, which involves a certain pain. And they don't want that. And if you'll just give them what they desire, they don't have to make the effort. But it's bad for them. Discipline. And we are kind of touched on it. Require, discipline is so important for the kids. Regularity is one of the keys, actually. You can't, obviously, you're not in a monastery and you're dealing with a lot of factors in your lives, so things aren't going to be running like clockwork all day long. And they can't. But there can be a certain structure that you oblige of your kids. And the principle is the two ends of the spectrum. The time they go to bed and the time they get up. And that should be, no matter what their age, should be fair. They could go to bed earlier, they don't go to bed after this time. Obviously, if they're a little older, go to bed a little bit later. But kids going to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and getting up for school in the morning looking like they, they, they're zombies because they couldn't say no to whatever, whether it be the novel they were reading or whether it be a letter they were writing or whether it be you know, a video game they were playing, or it doesn't matter. Right? See, you have to oblige that regularity. That's where strength of will comes from. That's where self-discipline comes from. So that when you're not standing behind them saying, do this, do your homework, get up for school, get dressed, clean up your room, when you're not there, they're doing it of their own accord. There's a discipline of the heart and the will that you instill with them. Same thing for the rise time. It should be firmly enforced. Make sure your kids get plenty of sleep. But when it's time to get up, they get up. Yeah. I know a girl that I had on camp, actually. She has she sleeps so deeply. It's incredible. You literally have to drag her out of bed physically. Well, all her mom does is pour water on her. <laughs> She's so sleepy. Right? And well, it's not very pleasant. It's not the way I would do it. I would drag her out of bed. But whatever. Right? The point is at least mom is enforcing the rise. Mom, it's time to get up. 
Same thing when you talk about discipline, responsibility for oneself, taking care of oneself. Right? You should expect of your kids a certain self-discipline in the way they dress, the way they take hold their, their hair, their cleanliness. All of that is about self-discipline, which is about strength and will. It's going to help them when they get to the battles, the deadly battles, that are only a few years away. A lot of times, I've been working in schools now for quite a long time, and you see a lot of good kids, and you just look at them, you, you love them. There's a generosity, there's a goodness, there's an innocence, but you see the cracks that you know are going to blow them away when they get to certain age. A lot of times you see So it's, it's when they're younger, you're preparing them for the battlefield. Right? A, a soldier is being prepared for battle by his, by his sergeant. His sergeant is doing him a disservice if he's easy on him. If he lets him slouch off and get out of drills and not, you know, it's too hot. Or, that soldier is a dead man when he gets to the real thing. He's a dead man. So is with your kids. So much of your kids. You've got to oblige what's difficult of them when it's part of their duty. You can't let them shirk their responsibilities. You must make them persevere in their difficulties. So avoid spoiling them, require true effort, require discipline. Another thing is very helpful, I've found, is to provide opportunity for significant but very rewarding effort. For boys, for example, when you go to like, I don't know, Gander Mountain has one, I know at home, uh, what is it, Dick's, Dick's Sporting Goods, right? They have those climbing walls. Uh, you take your 15-year-old boy and say, all right, do it. He's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to get up there so fast. In fact, I saw him last time I was home. I took my brothers, and there was this kid, and he brought his girlfriend. He's probably 17. He brought his girlfriend there. So how long do you think it'll take me? She goes, I don't think you can do it. And he goes, well, thanks. He got about a third of the way up. She just sat there. So my brothers were watching, and I said, how? I said, do you think you can do it? Um, they just seen him fall flat on his face. I'm like, well, I'd like to try. <laughs> he did well. He did well. But see, there, it's significant effort. And they love it. They love it. It's a challenge. Right? That obliges pain. Oh, the pain and muscles. It's good for them. It's good for them. Right? The, the Starkenberg pilgrimage this year was very difficult. I was proud of your kids. I was proud of your kids. Because it was cold. It was raining. When we got to the end of the walk, which is 12 miles, it's not a little bit. It's not that bad. But, but it was freezing. And the rain was coming down hard. And I told the kids, I said, if you're too cold to go to Mass in the rain, I understand. You go to the rain, you'll turn down on me. I didn't want anybody dying of pneumonia on me. All of them to mass. All of them. 
I was very proud of that. And they took a certain sense of satisfaction from that. They did something difficult, and they did it well. And they were pleased. They were pleased. And I'm sure they grew from it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. It was rewarding. Both on a natural level and on a supernatural level. <clears throat> Lastly, teach self-renovation. Where you try to instill in the child the desire to be of service to those around them. Not focused on themselves and what will please them, but focused on those around them and by their politeness, by their thoughtfulness, by their helpfulness, by their generosity, giving joy, being a support for those around them. Whether it be mom, whether it be dad, whether it be brothers or sisters, whether it be classmates, what you want is to instill in them the willingness and the desire to be of service to those around them. The focus is outwards and upwards. Well, over time, so we're going to wrap it up. But the whole, the bottom line here is effort, effort. Especially for kids, it's the only thing that's going to make them happy. If it's too easy, they're miserable. And if they're focused on themselves, they're more miserable stuff. And if they're living for pleasure, they're even more miserable because the world is telling them over and over and over again that pleasure will give them happiness, pleasures that they're not allowed to have. Because you are mean. They're so unhappy. And that unhappiness will extend to eternity. Unless it can be reversed. So even when, when the even especially when they're little, you're training your children to overcome by the effort you require. You're training your children to overcome themselves, to be stronger than their whims, stronger than their appetites. If they can't conquer themselves, they will be conquered. We've all experienced it ourselves. We know growing up, we had, first of all, we were, we were poor. I didn't know we were poor, but we were poor. We didn't have a lot. But also, Dad required a lot of us, so did Mom. I still remember one time, it was the summer, and Dad said, we had to go to Dad every day and ask him for work. I love doing that. <laughs> so, Dad, what do you want us to do tomorrow? Please, 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 don't be able to think of anything. <laughs> one time, Dad, you couldn't really think of anything. And I said, so that means we don't have to do any work. And he said, if I have to invent something for you to do, you work. <laughs> I was like, that's so mean. I say that. I wouldn't say that. But that's what I thought. But he was right. He was right. There's, there's got to be effort. Or even miserable and weak 
Right? You have to be able to overcome yourself. Right? So um, you're, you're working hard and you continue to work hard. Right? But the principles are important. Your child must, of his own accord, eventually be able to say no to himself without you saying no to him, without him saying no to himself. And the only way you can get him to that point is by requiring of him effort in every domain. Now, questions? Uh-oh, I don't like hands to go like this. <laughs> That's a bad sign. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay, so you encourage your child to, to overcome himself and do nice things for other people. Okay, so you say, oh, why don't, why don't you go make so-and-so's bed for them? That would be a nice thing to do. Well, I don't want to. All right, go do it. You know, it's, <laughs> is that helping them sometimes, to learn to do that? Sometimes. They're not using their own will. Well, sometimes, because they don't have the willpower. They don't have the selflessness. Yet. You're trying to help them to acquire that. How do you do that? By your example, firstly, and by taking advantage of opportunities that present themselves that will grab the kids. For example, the Starkenberg pilgrimage. We tried to give to the kids an intention that meant something, and we encouraged them to have their own private intention. I talk to them about, you know, if you're worried about something, or you're struggling with something, or you're worried about somebody, offer the privilege for them. And let's make it good. Right? So I didn't tell them, I'm going to be behind you the whole way. And if I see anybody talking, not praying, I'm going to whack you on your behind. <laughs> no. I try to take advantage of the opportunity right, to get them of their own accord to do it. Look, there are opportunities like that that do come up. Your kids do not have hearts of stone. They don't. Right? They don't. Right? They're, they're selfish because they're kids. You have to train them to look outwards. Yeah, but there are opportunities. Sometimes you have to force them. Sometimes you have to force them. Right? But, for example, I mean, let's say, I mean, Dad, right? Dad sees mom carrying groceries into the house, right? Dad's got his feet up and he's reading the paper, right? And he says to the five-year-old, go help your mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not going to work, right? What dad's got to do is say to the five-year-old, come on, those are too heavy for mom. Let's go. Let's go help her out. And the five-year-old will happily go along with that. Very happily. You've given him the example and the opportunity to be of service. He loves mom. He will be happy to do it. Right? Does that mean that every time you invite him to do something, he's going to be ex extremely happy? Well, no. No. We had a couple of the girls in the high school last year that I asked to be counselors on the little girls' camp that followed their big girls' camp. Of the two that we asked from here, neither one really wanted to do it. They knew that at that point they would be ready to come home. They knew that it would be require, require a lot of them. And they really didn't want to do it. Both of them said, all right, I'll do it. Because they wanted to be of service. They realized, look, I love camp. It's so good for me. So I'm going to try to give the same thing to somebody else. 
we provided them with the opportunity. They responded of their own accord. I was going to make them. And they, they enjoyed it. They were happy to do it. So remember, it's, it's something which takes time, too. You know, it's not like you can, okay, this week, kids, oh boy, get ready, because it's boot camp. Right? And the next week, you expect, okay, there you are. You know, St. Michael, St. James, St. Margaret. That's not, not going to happen. But you can work towards it. And they will be. They will be. What? You suppose that response that they agreed to it, they agreed because it came from you asking? It didn't hurt. <laughs> sure. But what is going on there? It's respect and love. Right. Right? What do you need for your kids to respond to the opportunities you give them? Respect and love. You have to love them. They have to know you love them. And they will do it for you. And it's the same thing with love of God. Right? Love is the ultimate motivator. Really, when it comes down to it, the only reason we do anything is out of love. It might be a self-love. I love that ice cream. Right? Fine. But when it comes down to it, that's the motivating factor. So yeah, of course it helps. Of course it helps. But that didn't mean they really wanted to do it. But they did do it. And they benefited from it. Yes? How about if you use the pen because I'm um, getting Yeah, you can use it. You can use it. You have to use it sometimes. Um, I don't know if I would quote the commandment. I would say, look, I'm your mother. And I told you to do it. Do it. I'm not, I'm not giving you a choice. You don't have to know that. No. So they hear it enough times. You know, there's no better way to love mom than to obey her. And there's no way, better way to show God that you appreciate mom and you appreciate him than by obeying her. And they, so they hear that many, many times. But you don't have to, you know, quote you know, verse and reference. I mean, you can. I mean, a catechism class would be more appropriate. We don't. When it comes to a kid that just doesn't want to do it, reasoning with him is not the answer. Just tell him, look, no, I, I didn't give you the option. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned. Um, well, obviously, there, there are some things that, that many of us don't have in our homes, such as uh, internet, for example, or video games, and 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 basically, what you're saying generally is that. The advice, that you, the practical advice that you've given us here, will help our children to uh, to avoid the pitfalls of those pleasures when they're outside of the home, or maybe when they're going over to a friend's house or whatever. Um, and and certainly, certainly, you're not advocating that we bring some of those into our house so that we can teach them how to say no at certain times to you know <laughs> those things. But I, there's one thing in particular I like. I wonder if you could, could touch on, and and this is something that I know that tradi- I know of traditional Catholic families who are on both sides of the aisle on this and. And um, it's, it's the subject of alcohol. And there are families who say that, well, we don't have any alcohol in our house at all because we just, we don't do it. Maybe it's for principle or maybe it's just the fact that they don't enjoy it. And there are families who, where, you know, the dad has a couple beers every night, for example, and gives his kids from the age of five a sip or two, or maybe eventually they'll give them a beer every night. And they're making, they're saying, well, obviously at some point in time when they're outside of the home, they'll have had it enough at home where they've known how to, to handle it, and it won't be a big deal. They won't go binge on it because they've been exposed to it all their right. life. 
Is there something, is there a right or a wrong way to handle that, or is there a, is, is maybe there's no right uh, or wrong? You, just, you hit on about 14 <coughs> things there, and they're good <laughs> questions. Um, I don't know if I can remember all of them. One, personally, with with the internet, the television, both the, the, the video games, things like that, the reason they're so dangerous is the pleasure is so intense. And remember when you're dealing with a kid, his will is weak. It's not formed. That's what you're trying to do. If you have a hard time turning off the tube mm-hmm. or resisting this or that, mm-hmm. what's he going to do? No question. Right. Right. So don't place something like that, like that, unless you have to, right? or unless there's a very strict control, very strict control. Mm-hmm. Don't place it in this position because you won't be able to resist. Right. Right. With other things like beer or cigars or whatever <laughs> One of my parents just went like this. <laughs> she knew exactly what I was thinking about. <laughs> I won't even say. <laughs> oh, what the heck. No. <laughs> you definitely do see both ends of the spectrum there. And I would say that the end of the spectrum where you put it at their disposition, but you show them how to use it properly, is the healthier, by far. Now, in my home growing up, we didn't have alcohol much at all. And my dad destroyed my taste for it when I was about 10 by giving me a warm beer. Right? It, worked for, it worked for 12 years. <laughs> Fathers, <laughs> there you go. Right? But it wasn't there just because it wasn't enjoyed much. Right? Um, at a given point, we started using wine for festive meals because that's what Catholic countries did. And so now we've developed a taste for it and enjoy it. Right? But at the time, we just weren't interested. Right? So that's different than saying, I don't want it in my house because it's too easily abused. It's not going to be there. When it's something like that, which in fact is not so easily abused, what you need to do is train them how to use it properly and enjoy the pleasure that God has put there. Enjoy it as a legitimate way. And that's I think it's a much healthier way to go about it, for sure. Right? There's no question, for example, in this country, there's a lot bigger problem with alcohol than there is in say, France. France, where they grew up and they have wine and meal, it's no big deal. There's no age of drinking, which alcohol is alcohol, right? And in this country, you know, 21 years age, now I can drink, now I can indulge my appetites. And then what do you get? You get the kids go out and they binge drink when they turn 21, like it's a rite of passage. What? So, I mean, obviously, it's that whole, it's a Protestant mentality, right? That basically wants to place the blame for evil, not on man, but on the thing. The problem isn't man. Man is good because man accepts Jesus as a personal savior. It's the thing that's bad. So no cigarettes at all. Pretty soon you won't be able to have them. You watch. No alcohol at all. Prohibition in this country. Just, nope, it's gone. Because it can be used. And you place the blame on the thing. You don't want to do that. Because the thing is not the problem. The problem is no willpower. No formation of will to want what is good over what feels good. Fair enough? I'm way over. Does this mean I cancel next week's class? <laughs>
All right, we'll see you later.